Now, we're in the fourth week of our relationship series that we're calling a series on relationships. It's a very, very profound title, right? And in this series, we're talking about how can we love the difficult, high-maintenance people in our lives? How can we even love those people that might land into the category of being our enemies? And we began our series by looking at Jesus' agenda for relationships. This is what he said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus says, listen, I want you to love that person in your life who stays up late at night trying to figure out ways to make your life miserable. I want you to love your ex-spouse. I want you to love your old roommate. I want you to love that ex-boss. I want you to love that business partner that ripped you out off. In fact, regardless of who that person is, this is what basically Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter, chapter 5. I'm sorry, I'm sleepy. Matthew chapter 5, as he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying this. Listen, if you make the decision to follow me, this is where I'm going to lead you. You may not want to go there, but this is where I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you to actually love your enemies. And we learned when we looked at it that Jesus used, when he, when he spoke of love, he used this word agape, which is the highest form of love. But it's a love that begins in, a, in the mind. It's not a warm, fuzzy love. It's, it, it's not Jesus saying that you got to have a warm and fuzzy relationship with your enemies. It's a decision. It's making a decision in regards to your enemy. I'm going to put their needs above my needs. I'm going to seek their highest good. Now, here's the question that we've been grappling with through this series. How do we do that? How do we, do, how do we love that person who's made our life miserable? How do, we, how do we love the person who has hurt us? How do we love that person who basically single-handedly destroyed the relationship that we were in? How do we do that? And we're learning in this series that this is the key. God has taught us or he's called us to treat each other the way that he has treated us. In other words, he says, I want you to love each other as I've loved you. I want you to accept each other as I've accepted you. I want you to forgive each other as I've forgiven you. Now, if you were here last weekend, Donnie presented one of the best messages I've ever heard on the topic of forgiveness. And in it, he talked about God has called us as Christians to forgive as we've been forgiven. But this is what I want you to understand this weekend. It would be wrong for us to walk away from this series thinking, I have forgiven the person that wronged me. I've forgiven, I've canceled that debt, I've let it go. But you know what? There's not a snowball's chance in hell that that person is ever going to be in a relationship with me again. That would be a wrong response with this series because that's not what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5. And I was thinking of this as I was listening to Donnie last weekend. Let's be honest. Most of us forgive. We make that decision to forgive someone because Jesus said, hey, it's in your best interest to forgive. Because he said, if you don't forgive, you're going to be angry. If you don't forgive, you're going to carry that bitterness all of your life. In fact, if you remember, Donnie referred to Matthew chapter 18. And it's a great story where Peter came forward and said, Jesus, how many times do I forgive that person? And I think implied there is the person who keeps hurting me over and over and over again. And Jesus' basic response was, you forgive them as many times as necessary. But then Jesus went into a story. And he told the story of a servant who owed his master literally millions of dollars, but the master forgave the debt. And then that servant went out and found a friend who owed him like $3.19 and he began to strangle him and he says, you got to pay me back what you owe me. And in the, in, in the story, Jesus says, turn that servant over to the torturers until he forgives as he has been forgiven. And we hear that and we're like, wow, 
We don't want to be turned over to the torturer, so then we make the decision to forgive. My point is this. I don't think we have any problem forgiving someone if we actually think that it's in our best interest to do that. But see, that response would be so wrong because when Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5, he didn't say this. He didn't say the goal was for you to forgive your enemy. He says the goal for you is to love your enemy. It's not about you doing what's in your best interest. It's literally doing what's in the best interest of the person who wronged you. Now, I know that a lot of you walked out of Donnie's message last weekend thinking this. You know, this stuff about forgiveness, it's, it's great in theory, right? This idea of forgive as you've been forgiven, it would make a great t-shirt. Maybe I can get my grandma, you know, to crochet that onto a pillow for me, right? But here's the question. Is it really possible to live that way? Is it really possible to love that way? And I know that you walked out thinking things like that because, see, I walked out thinking the same thing. Because when I was here last weekend, I sat on that row right behind the soundboard, and I was sat right there with Laura last weekend, and this is what I was thinking through the message. If you offend me, if you wrong me, just because of the way I'm wired, it's not because I'm so spiritual, and it's certainly not because I'm so godly, I will probably forgive you, and it will have very little impact on our relationship. But you know what? If you wrong my wife, or if you go after my children, I'll probably forgive you because I don't want to carry the bitterness and I don't want to be angry and I don't want to be turned over to the torturers. So I'm probably going to forgive you, but you don't have a whole lot of chance of getting back into my inner circle. I'll just tell you, that's what I was thinking. And this is what I realized. I believe that every one of us probably have a category like that in our lives. Sure, I'll forgive because that's what Jesus said to do. But there's no way that person is going to get back into my life, not back into my relational circle. Maybe you're here and you were abused. Maybe you were abandoned. Maybe someone betrayed you and now you have trust issues. But whatever it is, we all have one of those areas. So this is what I want to talk to you about this weekend. How do we forgive in such a way that it actually becomes a catalyst? It becomes a step. It becomes a trigger to eventually loving that person that wronged us. After all, that's the goal. That's where Jesus wants to lead us. So I want to share with you very quickly four principles about this process of forgiveness that will hopefully bring some clarity. And as we make this transition to how do we restore relationships that have been broken down that will get us moving in the right direction. And as I do this, I'm going to have to review a little bit because I'm playing off of what Donnie talked about last weekend. And we all know uh, that the reality of most of us making it to church two weekends in a row is almost impossible, right? So I got to assume a lot of you weren't here last weekend. So I just want to begin by reminding you of the first principle. We don't need to wait until we're asked to forgive to forgive. We don't wait. We take the initiative. It's a decision that we make. So let me just say this and I'll move on to the second principle. If you're sitting around this, wait, this weekend just waiting for the person who offended you to come crawling back to you to beg for your forgiveness, you don't need to wait any longer. Jesus says the ball is in your court. It's up to you to forgive. And if there's any hope of salvaging this relationship, if there's any hope of reconciliation, restoration, if there's any hope of living out Jesus' dream for us to love our enemies, the best thing you can do is to take the initiative as a Christian and forgive. Now, here's the second principle. Forgiveness isn't pretending that the offense never happened. 
It's not just letting that individual off the hook. And I believe that this misconception is probably the number one reason that as Christians we are so reluctant to forgive people when they hurt us. We kind of have the attitude, if, if I forgive them, then I, I kind of have to pretend as if it never happened. You see, some of you are listening right now, you're struggling because this is what you're thinking. I want to forgive my friend who betrayed me. I'm just not sure that I can act as though it never happened. Or I want to forgive that family member who abused me. I'm just not sure that I can act as though it never happened. Or I want to forgive my spouse who abandoned me and walked away from me. I'm just not sure that I can act as though it never happened. And if I just forgive them, it kind of seems like I'm letting them off the hook. Again, forgiveness isn't pretending that it never happened. It's not about letting them off the hook. In fact, if you're here this weekend and you've been hurt, especially if you've been hurt repeatedly, you don't need to just shut the door to that relationship. What you need to do biblically, and we'll see this more next week, is you need to establish some relational boundaries. Because understand, boundaries help determine who gets into our lives and how close they get. I mean, that's why we have a front door on the front of our house. See, we want to control who gets in. There's some people you don't want in your house. See, you're comfortable with them on the front porch, right? But you don't want them in your house. In the very same way, to allow the healing process to proceed, we have to make this decision. After we've been wronged, who gets back into my life and how close do they get? I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I shared something with someone in confidence. I didn't share it with anyone else except this one individual. A few days later, I found out from a third party that they also knew what I had shared with this individual. I was devastated. And I went to them and I talked to them and they apologized and I forgave them. But I got to tell you, I I didn't just open up my circle of trust and allow them to come right back in. My point is this. When someone hurts you, when someone wrongs you, when someone betrays you, when someone abuses you, God doesn't expect you to rush right back in that relationship and act as if nothing ever happened. But yet at the same time, he doesn't want you to throw up a wall and end that relationship. By the way, what's the difference between a wall and a boundary? You see, a wall is created... When we refuse to forgive and we make the choice to hang on to resentment. And let's be honest, the whole purpose of putting up a wall is basically to communicate to that person, you're dead to me, right? It's about revenge. It's about punishment. It's about retaliation. But boundaries are established through forgiveness. Boundaries are established through wisdom. And the goal of a boundary is to keep that person who wronged us, who hurt us, who abused us, who betrayed us just far enough away to keep them at a safe distance. But yet at the same time, you can still have some relationship with them. It's so that you can continue to relate at least at some level. It's so that you can continue to do at least some things together. And that's the difference between a wall and a boundary. And when someone has wronged you, when someone has hurt you, there are three areas in your life where you may have to establish some boundaries. The first one would be activities. There may just be some things that you're not going to be able to do together. Maybe it's just too soon. Maybe there are too many memories. Maybe it's just too raw. So you have to have some boundaries and activities. Another area would be communications. There's just some things you have to make the choice not to talk about. Maybe you'll get there right there, but right now you just can't discuss those topics because you know where it's going to lead. 
And I've actually had to do this with married couples when I'm doing counseling. It's like, you cannot discuss this without me there. You cannot have this conversation without a third party because you know it's not going to end well. So activities, communication. The third would be time. Maybe there's a person who hurt you and you just cannot spend a lot of time with them right now. And so you need to establish some boundaries, not for the sake of never having a relationship. You have boundaries so that you can start moving safely toward reestablishing a relationship with that person who's wronged you, that person who has hurt you. And hopefully, over time, as you get more comfortable, and as, as the wounds begin to heal, you can start to remove the boundaries. But understand, that is the only way that healing and restoration is going to take place. In a rela- it's the only way we're ever going to get to the place where we can actually love someone who at one time was an enemy. Here's the third principle. When confrontation is required, always forgive first. See, typically when, when, when a relationship is broken down, at some point you've got to have that hard conversation. Let me just say this. If you don't forgive first, if you don't make that decision to let it go, I'm telling you, nothing is going to be resolved. Because what happens is we go into that confrontation, we go into that relationship, and we're looking for answers. We want explanations. Sometimes we want that pound of flesh. So when you have that relationship, always forgive first. I'm not saying that you ignore the situation. I'm saying that you forgive first, and then you have confrontation. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter, two, chapter 4 verse 24. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Now I'm going to guarantee you this. If you confront someone while you are still angry, the odds of you handling it in a godly way, I'm just letting you know, they are significantly reduced. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. We're going to look at this next week as we talk about restoration. But this is what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. One commentator writes that it means this. He says, correct him, but not as a foe. In other words, you're not going in as the enemy nor is an adversary exacting a penalty. You're not trying to get payment. You're not trying to get your pound of flesh, but as a physician providing medicines. In other words, you go into this confrontation trying to bring healing. That is the goal of a confrontation. Think of it this way. Let's say a friend has offended you, and so you've decided that at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, you're going to meet them at Starbucks. And, and there's so much tension in this relationship. There's so much anxiety, maybe anger. But imagine if you met them at Starbucks and you began the conversation this way. I want you to know I've already forgiven you. I want you to know I've already made the decision to let it go. I'm here today to talk to you about where do we go from here? Can you imagine how that would change the dynamic of the conversation, right? And I'm telling you, if we do it the right way, and if we will take the time not just to talk, to make sure that we're heard, right? But we will actually listen to the other person and where they're coming from. We will discover that compassion will begin to flow back in that relationship again. But if you are angry, and if you're looking to exact that pound of flesh, you will never, ever experience that. 
make sure you hear me on this one. A goal in confrontation isn't justice. Let me say that again. The goal in confrontation isn't justice. As we're going to see next weekend, it is always restoration. This is what Romans chapter 12 verse 19 says. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You know what that tells me? God hasn't called us to punish our enemies. It's not our job to make them pay for what they did. It's not even our job as Christians to make sure they learn their lesson so that they never do this to anyone else. You know what he's called us to do? Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. He's called us to love our enemies and we leave the teaching and we leave the avenging and we leave the punishing up to God. Laura shared this verse with me this week. Great verse. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. Show of hands. How many do not obey that verse? Just, let's just be honest, right? Do not gloat. See, what do we say? <laughs> just a matter of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. They had it coming, right? What goes around comes around now. It's like karma, whatever that is, right? Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see, look at this, the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Do you know what that verse is saying? If you don't handle confrontation in a godly way, if you don't treat your enemy the way God wants you to treat your enemy, you actually short circuit what God wants to do in your enemy's life. What was it that Trey sang earlier? More heart. Let's attack. I didn't understand a lot of that song, but I got that. More heart and something about popping veins. I don't know what that was all about either, but more heart, more heart. What a message. More heart, less attack. Fourth principle. Remember that forgiveness. Now, this is so key. And this is what I wanted to get to this weekend to set us up for next weekend. Remember that forgiveness is the first step toward emotional healing. Let me explain why this is so important. When you are hurting emotionally, it is very, very similar to when you are hurting physically. Years ago, as a young man, I had really, really bad knees. I tore up my knee, my left knee, for the first time, 17 years old, playing football. Went on to college, was playing soccer, tore it up, hit it again, injured, and I ended up having to have a major reconstruction. I was 18 years old. It was like 1975, right? Two years later, I'm back in college playing basketball, tore up my other knee. That led to numerous other knee operations. And after that, scar tissue and, and arthritis. And finally one day, I walk into Dr. Haig, my orthopedic surgeon's office, and I'm talking about how bad my knees have gotten. And he's taking x-rays and he's doing all these things. And he says, Mike, there's nothing that I can do that will instantaneously heal your knee pain. But he says, there's something we could do that could begin the healing process. And I said, what's that? Super shot, secret treatment? Nope. I'm going to chop your knees out. I'm going to put in some brand new ones, no mileage whatsoever. And so I had the surgery. 
And I had them both done at the same time. And I got to tell you, it was more painful than I could have ever imagined. And because of the pain that was caused by the surgery, first of all, uh, Laura will tell you, I was very, very defensive. I didn't want anybody anywhere near my knees. I didn't want the doctor to touch them. I didn't want the nurse to touch them. I didn't want the physical therapist to touch them. I didn't want Laura to change my bandage. Stay away from my knees. I was very, very defensive. And second, I was very, very self-centered. And I think that's pretty natural. Let's face it. I mean, the more we hurt, the more self-centered we are. That's why we tell our children, don't go near a wounded animal. We know, see, because the world revolves around us. It's all about us. In fact, when I was recovering, I'll tell you, it was, it was not the best time for you to stop by my house and share your marriage problems with me. I could care less about your marriage. Care about your marriage? It was a horrible time for you to tell me, send me an email that you're disappointed in me. I could care less how disappointed you were in me. I didn't want to talk to you about how loud you thought the music was. I'd just punch you in the throat right then. I'm just telling you, I wasn't in the mood for it, right? Because when I was suffering, I was interested in one thing. I was interested in me. Let's be honest. That's just the nature of pain. Whenever we're hurting physically, we are very self-centered. Well, in the very same way, I'm telling you, when we are hurting emotionally, especially when the wounds are really, really deep, we become self-centered by nature. It is just part of being wounded emotionally. And as we're going through that, as we all know, there is absolutely nothing that can instantaneously heal the pain. And just like with my surgery on my knees, it's not unusual in the process of forgiveness for the pain to actually intensify emotionally. And that's why we say things when we be hurt. I don't want to deal with it. It's just too what? Painful. It's because we know that if we rip off that Band-Aid and if we go there... And if we try to deal with it, it's probably going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But going back to my knees, a couple of weeks ago, I was with my family, my kids and my grandkids down in Disney World. And we probably walked six, seven, eight miles every day for seven days straight. Not one second of knee pain. My point is this. Even though it may hurt, even though it may get much, much worse before it gets better, forgiveness is the beginning of the emotional healing process in our lives. And as painful as it, is, as it may be, we have to forgive because to refuse to forgive is to continue to hurt. To refuse to forgive is just to allow the pain in our lives to go on and on and on and on and on. And I'm telling you, it's a great saying, but it's a lie. Time does not heal our wounds. So we have to tend to our emotional wounds so that the healing process can begin. By the way, the key word is process. And that's very, very important because some of you sat here last weekend and when Donnie challenged you at the end of his message, you forgave that person who wronged you. You canceled the debt. You made the decision to let it go. But now you sit here a week later, you don't feel any different. You certainly don't feel any better. But you got to understand it's because, see, you were at the beginning of the process. It's not the entire process. It's the beginning of the process. Now, Donnie said this last weekend. He said that when Jesus died on the cross, all of us who are Christians, we all lost our right to refuse to forgive. When Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, we lost our right to hang on to anger and hurt. And so the question, as we begin to make this transition to Taking that first step of forgiving, now moving toward restoration so that we can love our enemy. Here's the question. Are you still hanging on? Or are you willing to say, as much as I don't want to do this, 
And as much as I want the person who hurt me to suffer, and as much as I want them to pay, I understand that I have lost my right as a Christian to refuse to forgive. I'm telling you, as difficult and as unjustified as it may seem, this is what Jesus said. He says, listen, you got to forgive your brother. you got to forgive your sister. you got to forgive your parents. you got to forgive your children, your neighbor, your bosses, your employee. You've got to forgive, and you've got to do it from your heart. In other words, he says, you have got to extend the same mercy to the person who wronged you as was extended to you at the cross. And again, it's not just for our benefit. Sure, when we forgive, we're set free. But more importantly, when we forgive, we are one step closer to a restored relationship. When we forgive, we are one step closer to the mandate that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I want you to love your enemy. I love to study and read about Abraham Lincoln. I think he was just one of the greatest leaders that we've ever had, not just as a country, but in the world. And one time someone approached him at the end of the Civil War, after the war was over, and the question was, how will you treat the Southerners who rebelled against you and seceded from the Union? Now that the war is over, President Lincoln, how are you going to treat them? And this was Lincoln's response. I will treat them as if they never left. That's where Jesus wants to take us. That's restoration. And that's what it means to love your enemy. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I am much better at talking about this stuff than I am actually living it out, right? And I won't lie to you. I got some, my own journeys that I'm on when it comes to this topic. So next week when we begin to talk about restoration and what that process looks like, let's all put our big boy panties on. Let's put on our steel-toed shoes. And let's show up and let's at least have the guts to hear what God has to say about how we can get there. And I know what some of you are thinking. You would love to raise your hand because you have so many questions and there's so many areas where you want clarity and you've got your own unique situation. You wonder it's different than what Jesus was talking about. By the way, let me just say, this is the value of a small group. This is the beauty of a small group, a group of people who get together every week and they don't just hear a message from a pastor on Sunday or Saturday. They actually get together sometime during the week and they they get to talk about how can we actually live this out? How did you do this? What do you guys think? When you hit a wall like this, how do you break through that wall? That is the beauty of a small group. And this is what I'm going to ask you as your pastor. I'm going to ask you and we're going to give you a way for the next four weeks, would you consider trying a small group? You can put up with anybody for four weeks. I mean, you can put it with family members for four weeks, right? These would be people in your neighborhood, maybe people at work where it's convenient for you, where you just get together and you talk about the aspects of what we talk about. So next week when I talk about restoration, you'll have a chance to get together and say, wow, what would that look like in this situation? You can discuss these things. But not only that, I'm going to ask all of us to get into a small group for four weeks. And I'm going to ask you to, and I've never in 22 years asked the church to do it this way. I would... I would ask you just to get together and just pray about the future of Hope Community Church. And I say that because, see, right now the opportunities before us are ridiculous. I mean, yeah, we got to get that apex building finished. 
And I said a few couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, that we needed to raise $1.3 million by May 20th. And just so you know, three weeks in, of that $1.3 million, we're 56% of the way, $726,000 has come in. So, that, yeah, that, you guys should applaud yourself. That's your sacrifice and commitment that's made it happen. We got four more weeks. I'm confident that if we do our part, God's going to show up and do his part. That's not a big concern of mine. But we got to get that out of the way and open and moving forward because other opportunities. Ship of Zion. Two years ago, we bought that building for them in southeast Raleigh. Not only have they filled it up, they've gone to three services, but they have absolutely no children's facility to do the things that we know need to be done there. We've got to address that. If you go down to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, two years ago we started a campus in Port-au-Prince. They're now running over 1,000 every weekend. Two services. They have their first one at 6 o'clock in the morning. The second one at 8 to beat the heat. We've got to start a new campus. We've got to figure out how we're going to do that. This is probably one of the coolest stories. A few years ago we had a couple who moved here from France. He was an electrical engineer moved to the Triangle. Someone invited him to Hope Community Church. Him and his wife came. Both of them accepted Jesus as their Savior. They got in a small group. They began to grow. They began to serve. They got relocated back to France. I'm coming back from Uganda. I'm at Heathrow Airport in London on a shuttle, and I run into Frank. That's the guy from France. So what are you doing here? He says, I'm on my way back from Raleigh to France, and I'm passing through London. And he says, Pastor Mike, we want a church like Hope in Grenoble. We have 50,000 college students who want to learn English. We want an English-speaking church. We play videos. We do everything. We don't have Kid City. We have Kid Hamlet. You know, and he's going on trying. So they're trying. But he's like, you've got to help us. Could we be a campus? Is there some way that you can? Imagine, Laura and I went there, 50,000 college students learning, who want to learn how to speak English. What a great opportunity to share the gospel. We got 400 adults in North Raleigh that are ready to start a campus. We got several hundred out in Garner and Clayton. Did you know we had 600 adults in Fuquay Verena? <laughs> you know what would be a great joke? We start a campus in Fuquay, Verena, and I end up having to be the campus pastor. You know what I'm saying? I'll do it. I'll get a goat and go right on out there. I'll fit right in. But this is what, this, what God is taking us through as a church. This is what it reminds me of. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It said, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now look at this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The Greek word there means his stomach knotted up. Because they were ha harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Nothing has ever been written that better describes the world in which we live right now than a bunch of people who look harassed and helpless. They look like sheep without a shepherd. But notice what Jesus said. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is what I want to pray about over the next four weeks. Laborers. A lot of us are just sitting on the front porch watching everybody else work out in the field. I want us to pray that there'll be a movement of God through this congregation where we realize, I really do believe that our days are short on this earth. I really do that we may very well see the return of Jesus Christ in our lifetime. Because I don't know how much longer this crazy world can exist the way it's existing. So Jesus said, I want you to work. And this is what I want us to pray. I want us to pray that people will get off the front porch and become laborers. And they'll serve. And they'll share your, their story. And they'll give. And they'll be the people that God has called them to do. 
doing kingdom work to change his kingdom because I believe that time is short. So in just a second, Jason's going to come out after I pray and tell you how you could very easily get into a small group for four weeks. But I'm just asking, would you at least try it and help us through this critical time here at Hope Community Church to pray? Let's just pray. Let me close by praying. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for the simple truths in your word about forgiveness, about restoration, about the call to love our enemies. Just simply thank, Father, how our world right now could radically change if our goal was to love our enemies. Help us get there. And next week as we begin to talk about restoration of relationships that are broken down, give us the desire to live in such a way that people see Christ in us, that you live this stuff through us because we can't do it on our own. And we're going to give you the credit and the glory for what you do in us and among us. In your name we pray. Amen.